Hi, y'all. I'm Sue. I'm a very grateful member of the Al-Anon family group because today I live an alcoholic. Good morning. And my recovery date is May of 1976. I haven't stabbed an alcoholic since then. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dennis. Dennis made his Al-Anon jokes last night. He said that uh, he liked giving the early slots to California people, especially Al-Anons. <laughs> Make them get up. I was just wondering, why aren't you in Florida? <laughs> I think we have the solution for that whole thing. Why don't they just pull a name out of the hat? That's what we end up doing. Oh. Anyway, I'm glad to be here. I want to thank Fran and Bubba for uh, being our host and hostess, picking us up at the airport because they didn't know exactly when to do that. And they were there when we got off the plane. And uh, so I want to thank you all for asking Keith and I to come together. It's neat that we get to uh, do these things together. And we enjoy being together today, and that's really great. It's really different from where we came from. We're real buddies today. And... uh, I just love being here. I love being in a room full of alcoholics. Now, I know there's Al-Anons here. Can I see the hands of the Al-Anon members? Wonderful. Great. But I bet there's twice as many Alkies here. (laughs) You can feel them. It gives me an energy just, ooh. You're my entertainment today. You know how you can tell the difference between an alcoholic and a dog? Dogs quit whining when you let them in. (laughs) It is so funny. Our daughter and our granddaughter just arrived Wednesday from Italy. Our granddaughter's uh, 22 months old. And uh, we get to see them once a year. And uh, they come at Christmas time. Simone's always come at Christmas time. She's lived in Italy for uh, 17 years. And our granddaughter's 22 months old. And, uh, and Nicole, our granddaughter, this time, everywhere Keith goes, she just follows him everywhere. Now I just smother the heck out of her. And I think she just takes me for granted. But this time, her and Keith have just, you know, the last time they were here, her and I bonded and really great. It was wonderful. She just loved the hell out of me, all over me. And uh, this time she's following Keith all over. And she speaks Italian and a little bit of English. And so I'm having to learn some, we're having to learn some Italian. And uh, Simone went to the store and about every other thing that I said was Vinny Kwan, which means come here, you know, and just chased her all over the house. And uh, But when Keith left to go to a meeting, she called him Pappy. She's already got a name for him. And she picked Pappy instead of Grandpa or whatever. She hasn't called me anything yet. <laughs> I even acted like I was leaving so I could see what she was going to call me. And she just goes, chow, chow. <laughs> so I'm here today with a lot of jealousy in my heart. <laughs> She just, oh my God, the energy and the life that she brings into our home is just incredible. You know, even the cats come alive. 
<laughs> it's just, she fills my heart. She just fills my heart because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon has put a family back together. And we couldn't enjoy this with the help of you, sponsorship, meetings, and a lot of long-timers in our life that told us there was a way to live. I was taught early on that when I get to do things like this, I have the privilege and the honor to be asked to do this, that I'm supposed to share in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And uh, what it was like is just so simple for me. It was like this drunk goes into a bar. There was a little gal sitting in a bar, and, and this drunk comes walking in, and he puts a $100 bill on the bar, and he tells the bartender, he said, I want a bottle of Jack Daniels, and don't let it go dry. And the bartender said, well, looks like you're going to hang on one heck of a drunk. He said, yeah, I am. I just got out of prison. And the bartender said, oh, yeah, what for? And he said, I killed my wife. Bartender goes, whoa, and he turns around to go get the bottle of Jack Daniels. This little gal slides down the bar and sits on the bar stool next to him and looks at him and says, so, I hear you're single. <laughs> and that's pretty much us. <laughs> but I have a story that I've been dying to tell ever since I met Bubba. <laughs> and Bubba and... Uh, Leroy were driving down the road and they were drinking their Budweiser and, and Bubba looks up and he sees a roadblock up ahead. And so he tells Leroy, hurry up and chug your, your Bud and tear the label off of it, put it on your forehead and throw the bottle out in bar ditch. And so Leroy says, why? And he said, just do it. So Leroy did. And, and so Bubba does the same thing. And so they're sitting there with these Budweiser labels on their forehead and they get up to the roadblock and the cops walk up to him and said, so, I see, I see you guys have been drinking your Budweiser's today. And Bubba goes, oh, no, sir. He said, well, what's that on your forehead? Bubba said, oh, man, we're on the patch. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bubba, that one's for you. <laughs> I can't help myself. I just seem to be born this way. Things like that just remind me of stuff. <laughs> and I just like to have fun. And I was raised in a home that uh, people enjoyed each other. I was not raised in an alcoholic home. I don't know what happened to me. Uh, but when I first came to the meetings of Al-Anon, I looked around and I heard people say, once you're attracted to the alcoholic personality, you're always attracted to the alcoholic personality. And I thought, I never grew up with alcoholism. I've never been... A, you know, married before, Keith's my first and current husband. And, uh, you know, what's a lady like me doing in a place like this? And uh, I had to look at myself, and I looked at my character defects. And I know that growing up I had certain characteristics, and once I met the disease of alcoholism, it started turning them into character defects, and they just blossomed. Because, you see, I, was, uh, I grew up in a family that... Uh, of three children, I had an older sister and a younger brother, and uh, my dad worked in the oil fields. We moved all over uh, Texas in the Oklahoma Panhandle and western Kansas. We lived in a trailer house. We followed the oil rigs all over, and everybody called me oil field trash. There was times that I went to five, six schools in one year, and there was something inside of me that would listen to that stuff. 
and I started feeling less than. And always wanted to be just a hometown girl, and moving around like that, you never are, and you never feel like you fit or you belong anywhere. And when I was uh, in junior high, my folks moved to a little town, Perryton, Texas, the Texas Panhandle, and they decided to settle down there. My older sister ran off and got married and uh, started a family, and that left I uh, and my father after a period of time. Uh, he passed away with cancer when he was 40 years old. And uh, I think I was 15 years old, and uh, that left my mother, my younger brother, and I at home. And after a period of time, my mom started dating, and I resented that because she was being disloyal to my father. And I started rebelling, and I ended up in an unwed mother's home in San Antonio, Texas. And I stayed there for a period of time, and I gave that child up for adoption. And I am so grateful that I did that, because at 16, no way was I ready, willing, or able to be a parent. And I heard something in there that I never heard again until I met you. And there was a counselor in there that told me, she said, Sue, God uses people to help other people. He's used you as an instrument to help some people have a child that they couldn't have. And I accepted that, and I went back home. And I got back home, and the kids I used to run with were boring and not fun anymore. And uh, one night, my mom said, you want to go with me? And I said, yeah. So I went with my mom, and she went to a honky-tonk. And we walked in that honky-tonk, and it was loud. The music was loud. It was rowdy. It was smoky. People were drunk, and they were fighting. And it's like, whoa, I'm home. I loved it. And I stood in there, and I watched this cowboy move the room. And I'd never seen anybody do what he was doing before. And I thought it took a lot of courage to do what he was doing. He was starting fights. <laughs> and uh, he started to fight, and he came running past me, and he said, Honey, let me know when the cops leave. And like a good potential Al-Anon, I was given direction. I stood on duty. <laughs> and uh, when the cops were gone, I opened the... He ran in the woman's restroom and hid in there. And so I... Stood there and I opened the door after they were gone and I said, uh, you can come out now, cowboy. And he came out and he asked me for the last dance. Usually the last dance was a slow dance where you can rub up against each other and get ready to go home. And this was a fast dance. And it just kept getting faster and faster and faster. And we never missed a lick. And I loved it. And I look back at that and what I know today is that he got me downtown in the fast lane right now. He did for me what nothing else had ever done for me. And I loved it. He called me the next day and he said, uh, would you like to go out? And I said, sure. And my mom said, no, you're not going with him. Excuse me, I'm taking my shoes off. <laughs> my mom said, you're not going with him. He's in trouble all the time. He's been married before and he's older than you. And I said, I don't care. So he came to pick me up that night. We go outside and there's no car. <laughs> You've had guys like that too, huh? <laughs> I said, now wait a minute, guys come pick me up in cars. He said, no, you don't understand. He said, uh, I've totaled my car and I've had my driver's license taken away forever. And I said, no problem. <laughs> so I got him in my car and I knew what to do. I took him to the drive-in movie. And we went to the drive-in movie, and we sat there, and we watched the movie. And I remember thinking, whoa, this must be what it's like to be with a more mature man. Because I knew at the drive-in movie, you kiss and smooch and steam up the windows, and we weren't doing that. 
and I was so impressed. Until I looked over and he had a six-pack of beer set between his legs that he was more interested in than me. And that set up that compulsion and that obsession in me. I wanted to be number one in his life. I started competing with alcohol from the very first date. And I know today the only difference between an alcoholic and an Al-Anon is the obsession. His is the booze and mine's the boozer. And we started dating. And uh, we used to go up to uh, across the Oklahoma panhandle into Kansas and, and party up there at the Shangri-La and Rosie's and all those neat Wonset buildings, you know. And uh, we had some great times up there. I mean, it was when Roy Clark was new and Hank Thompson was out. He autographed my thighs one time. It was great. <laughs> and uh, we had so much fun. And we got up there one night and this gal was flirting with Keith and he was flirting with her. And, and you don't do that. And uh, we got in a big fight and we fought about who was going to drive home and he won and we get in the car and we're going 100 miles an hour down toward Texas. And uh, we go across the Oklahoma state line. They have a roadblock set up there. And he said, oh, my gosh, if they catch me, I'll never see the sun again. And I said, no problem. So we switched places going 100 miles in that car. And we got down to the other end of the state line, and they had a roadblock set up there. And they pulled us over, and, and they looked at me, and they said, we know you weren't under that wheel when you clocked us back there, and we don't know how you got here, but we've checked this car out, and it's been reported stolen. So we're taking you both in. And Keith, the cop said something, and Keith smacked him. And so they handcuffed him and put him in the sheriff's car and told me to follow him 40 miles to the county seat so they could arrest me, so I did. And, uh, <laughs> and we get there and they're fingerprinting and booking us and, uh, and they said you can make one phone call and he said I want to speak to the district attorney and gosh I am so impressed this man goes straight to the top <laughs> and pretty soon this guy walked in and he had mature gray hair and a turned up collar on his coat his fur and I'll never forget him I was impressed with him immediately attracted to him. Today I know it's because he's an alcoholic too. <laughs> and uh, Keith looked at me and he said, Sue, I'd like you to meet my father. So the first Christmas we dated, I was in custody to my future father-in-law, but there wasn't anything wrong with me yet. And uh, we dated for two years. And uh, we'd have fights. Keith would stand me up. And you don't do that to me. And the smug and arrogance would come up to me and I'd say, you can't treat me this way. I'll show him, you know. And he'd call me, and I was going to tell him all the stuff, all of the what for's, and why you can't treat me that way, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he'd call me, and I'd say, where were you last night? And he'd say, well, I don't know why. Now, I should have caught on with that, too. And I said, because we were supposed to have a date. He said, no problem, I'll pick you up tonight. And I'd go, oh, okay. <laughs> and I'd be really mad, you know, because it didn't show him. And so then he'd come and pick me up, and right before he'd get there, I'd think, I've got to show him how it feels. If I just show him how it feels, he'll understand. And so I'd chug a lug a few beers before he'd get there, and he'd walk in, and he'd look at me, and he'd go, well, you're not going. And I'd say, why not? And he'd say, because you're drunk. And I said, well, I go with you when you're drunk. And he said, I know. You hang out with drunks. I don't. <laughs> and uh, he was right. He was right. And we'd be riding around, and, and he wouldn't be doing what I wanted him to, and I'd jerk the keys out of the car and throw them out in the vacant lot, and he'd get so angry. 
and he'd have to go find those keys and he'd get back in the car and start hollering at me and I'd kick him or hit him and we'd start having a fight and then he'd take me home and I'd walk in the house and my mom would look at me and she'd say, what do you do to that man to make him treat you like that because I'd have a black eye. And I'd say, what do I do to him? Look what he just did to me. Not being responsible for my own actions. It was a pattern that I had for like 15 years. If he wouldn't have drank, I wouldn't have had to do that. Nobody ever told me I had to do things. I just intuitively knew that that's the way you acted. You had to get even. I loved the sweet taste of revenge. And uh, my girlfriends used to talk about their boyfriends coming over and doting on them all the time. And Keith would come over, and I didn't understand pass out, but he'd come over at my house to watch TV like my girlfriend's boyfriends would do with them, and he'd pass out or go to sleep, I thought. And I think, he can't do that to me. Why is he treating me this way? I'll show him. And so he came over one night, and he went to sleep on me, and Keith used to have long hair and a long beard, and I thought, I'll let him have it. And so I went and got a razor, and I shaved half his head and half his face off. <laughs> and he got up, and he went home. He came back, picked me up the next night for a date, and he had the same way. <laughs> and we'd go drag Main Street. That's when you drag Main Street. And we'd go drag Main Street. We'd go down this way, and he'd have long hair and a beard. And then he'd turn around, we'd go this way, and he'd be all clean. And he'd say, everybody in this town thinks I'm two-faced anyway. <laughs> and I'd just giggle and laugh. I thought he was so cute. He went around that way for about two weeks. And I just thought he was the cutest thing ever, and I still do. Yeah. He shaved his head here a while back because his hair was getting so thin. And uh, I went home and I said, oh my gosh. Because we used to fight about his hair all the time. And about two years ago he did that. And uh, I went down and I saw him in the bathroom shaving his head. I said, oh my gosh. He said, we're not going to have one of those hair fights, are we? And I said, bet your ass we're not. You don't have any anymore. (laughs) And he started letting it grow out for a while. He wanted to see what it looked like. And he came up to me. He said, why didn't you tell me? Because he's bald right up in here. I said, tell you what. He said, it looks like I have a toilet seat sitting on my (laughs) head. Nobody would have known he would think like that. I just love it. It's so funny. Yeah. And then one day he said, you know, with his, his beard and no hair, he said it looked like he had his head on upside down. Yeah, I just love things like that. He is so cute. <laughs> we have so much fun. The neat part is we used to fight about stuff like that. Just knock down, drag out fights. Yeah. Keith got a draft notice and we decided that we couldn't live without each other. So we ran off and got married after dating for two years. And uh, Uncle Sam didn't want him, so I got to keep him. And uh, after that, Keith's folks and I decided that what he needed to do is go back to school. And Keith had gone to school for many years, never got a degree. But I knew that I had what it took to make him stay put because he had gone to way too many schools to carry all of his credits with him. And and so if he just stayed put in one place, he would be able to get an education. And I knew that I had what it took to make him do that. And so we packed up all of our stuff and we moved to Stillwater, Oklahoma and Keith enrolled in school. And uh, shortly after that we had our little girl Simone. And I can remember when they handed her to me thinking, thank God, she's a girl. Because Keith was a drunk and his granddad was drunk. 
where his dad was, and uh, his granddad was the town drunk. And I knew if we had a boy that he would carry on the family tradition. I didn't know that alcoholism is a family disease. I didn't know that it affects everybody in the family, that everybody gets insane, and you don't even have to drink alcohol to get there. It is a family disease. Alcoholism doesn't care what sex, color, race, or creed you are. It takes you to the gates of insanity and hell. And our family went there. I know the difference today between religion and spirituality. Religion is for people that are afraid to go to hell, and spirituality is for those of us who have already been there. And we have all lived in hell. It's been here right on earth. And I am so grateful because of this program and the 12 steps and sponsorship, strong sponsorship. And to say, get into action. Take the actions and get busy and you'll get better. Work with others. Once we get this thing, we have to work with others. But the disease of alcoholism is so selfish and so self-centered. And it thinks that we're the only ones I thought that I was the only one that lived that way. I was so grateful when I got to this program to find out there was people that understood, that knew me without me even telling you what was wrong with me. The minute I walked in the door, you knew what was wrong with me. I was talking to a newcomer the other night, and she lives in a house with some other single Al-Anons. And she got... Upset because she said, I was walking into the house and Danielle was walking in and she went in the house and shut the door and I was standing right beside her. She just shut the door in my face. I said, she probably didn't know you were there. She said, but I was walking right beside her on the sidewalk and I said, duh. This is a disease of self-centeredness. She's new too. Don't you love newcomers? They think they're the only ones. The only ones in the world. And I felt that way when I was here, when I was new. And that's why it's so neat to talk to newcomers because they remind me where I came from and what it was like. You could have been standing on my foot and I wouldn't have even known you were there because my thoughts were into him. Where's he at? What's he doing? And who is he with? And how much is he drinking? I was just obsessed with his drinking, I believe, as he was obsessed with his drinking. And none of that changed. The the more the disease progressed, the worse it got with me, the more insane I got. And Keith went to school at Stillwater, and it took him four years to get a two-year degree, typical drunk. And I took all the credit, typical Alan. Because I needed the validation. I needed something to let me know I was okay. Because the disease of alcoholism had started telling me I was nobody, I didn't count, I didn't know nothing, I was stupid. And there was something inside of me that wanted to believe that. And there was things that Keith would say to me that I knew I didn't do. I'd go to the store. Where have you been? You've been out messing around. And I'd think, no, I just went to the store. And I'd question myself. And that's what alcoholism wants. It wants us to question ourselves. It wants us to think, what happened? And I doubted myself all of the time, and it just kept getting worse. 
And finally, Keith came home one day after he graduated, and he goes, so I want to move to California. And I said, no, it's too wild and crazy out there. I'll never raise children in California. He said, babe, you don't understand. You've been going to all these honky-tonks. You've been drinking out of paper sacks. You know, you need to go to California because you can dress up and go into a nice restaurant, and they serve cocktails, and that's where a lady like you belongs. And I'm going, yeah. <laughs> And so we hurried up and packed all of our stuff, and he built this big wooden box, sprayed it bright blue, put it on wheels, and we hooked it up to our station wagon, and we headed out for California. We put Simone and our cat in the back of that station wagon at the back laid down. We had to go through Oklahoma City at midnight and get a prescription filled in a baggie, and I didn't see anything wrong with that because, you see, I denied that part of the disease, that a drug is a drug is a drug. And we started out for California. It should take three days to get there. It took us 30. Because it depended on what he drank or what he took as to how far we went. And there was days that he just stayed put. And I can remember waking up in the mornings and looking at Keith to see how I was supposed to feel and how Simone was supposed to act. Because if Daddy doesn't feel good, you don't do nothing to upset him. you got to be cool. And we get in that car and we go down the road and our, our dog got so crazy. It said, stand behind the driver's seat and wait for big trucks and chase them to the back of the station wagon. And he'd hit his head on the back of the window of the station wagon. He'd be on the cat and they'd have a dog and cat fight. They'd be on top of Simone and she'd be crying. I'd turn around and I'd start whacking and bitching and Keith would start drinking. And we did that one day at a time for 30 days. <laughs> and, uh, we got to California. As soon as we crossed the state line, we got Keith got arrested. Because he had knocked the mirror off of the right side of the car. And we'd never been on freeways before. And so I had to hang out the window on the right side of the car to see if any trucks or cars were coming so he could switch lanes. And when the highway patrol pulled us over and stopped us, they said, we don't have human rearview mirrors in California. <laughs> and so we found this house and we settled down. And Keith was never going to you know, go off and work in the oil fields again. And he didn't. And that would leave me and Simone at home. And I'd be standing at the window waiting for him to come home when he's going to get here. And Simone would say, Mommy, what are you doing? Yeah, and I'd say, get away from me. I'm busy. I'm busy. I was totally in my obsession. Don't interrupt my obsession. I'm thinking about him. And she'd say, Mommy, help me with my homework. Yeah, and I'd say, get away from me. Or I'd be vacuuming. I'd say, when he gets home, I'm going to say this, and he'll say that, and blah, 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 blah. And Simone would walk up to me, and she'd go, Mommy, who are you talking to? And I'd say, get away from me. Leave me alone. And then Keith would walk in, and I'd be right in his face. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Blah, 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 blah. And the finger would just be gone. He'd say, Sue, get out of my face. And I'd take one step closer, and he'd say, Sue, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to hit you. And I'd take one step closer and the finger would just be gone and he'd hit me and the knockdown drag out fight was on. And he had me on the bed one night and he was just choking the living tar out of me. And I thought, oh my God, if he doesn't let go of me, I'm going to die. I'm just absolutely going to die. And I looked up at him and he's looking down at me with all the intensity he has. And it dawns on me, he's not thinking about nothing but me. I have 100% of his attention. I am number one in his life. 
And so I started those kind of situations a lot because that was the only time I was number one in his life. And we'd have those fights and he'd walk away. He'd be done and I'd have that rage inside of me. And what do you do? I didn't know what to do with it. And I'd turn around and Simone would be standing there and I'd take the rest of it out on Simone. And I remember one time I was banging her head against the wall and she looked at me and said, Mommy, I know why you're doing this. You're showing Daddy you can act just like him. And I thought, how does she know that? I didn't know that. And Keith came home one night and he said, Baby, you want to go out to dinner? And I said, Oh, you bet. Because you see, I wanted to be a lady. I was losing the ability to be a mother, be a good parent, and to be a lady. And I wanted something to help me be a lady. And I wanted to be somebody because the alcohol, the, the disease and the alcoholic was always telling me I wasn't. And I needed something to validate me. And I needed all of that stuff. And so he said, you want to go out to dinner? And I thought, yeah, because you see, that's where a lady goes. And I wanted to be a lady. So we hurried up and we all got all dressed up. And we drive up in front of this restaurant. And it's a beautiful brick building that has... Cocktails on a neon sign on the front of the building doesn't have rosies painted on the window or Shangri-La on a board above the door. It's not a Quonset building. It's great. People are dressed up and they're in there and they look nice. And this guy waits on us and he, he takes us and he seats us like real people. And it's like, yeah, if we can do these kind of things, we'll be okay. We'll be like everybody else. You know, the illusion is, is that we return to normal. And I wanted to be normal. God, I'm so grateful I'm not today. Most of the normal people I know don't even have a clue what their character defects are. And they don't want me to tell about it either. <laughs> but we have a clue, which gives us the opportunity to know what we can work on so we become better children of God. And we concentrate on what God wants us to be. And they don't have a clue. And so I'm grateful for the teachings that I've had. Today I can say that I'm grateful that I've been where I've been and I have what I have because if I didn't have any of that, I wouldn't have you. And when I didn't have what I have today, I didn't have a God in my life. And I found you and I found God. And I am so grateful for that. And we sat in that restaurant and we looked around and the guy came over... And he said, would you like a cocktail with your dinner? And so, yeah, because you can't get drunk if somebody else is mixing it. And they brought us our cocktails and set them down, and I'll never forget it. We ordered Simona Shirley Temple. We didn't leave her out at all. And Keith picked up his, and he said, babe, let's toast to the good life. And God, it was heaven. We sat there, and we toasted to the good life, and it was wonderful. And I loved it. And then I started counting, and he had ten to my one. I knew exactly how many he had. And I'd watch those people in the room, and they were classy people. And they had long stem crystal glasses. And God, growing up in a trailer house and being all field trash, you don't have fine china like that. You don't have that kind of stuff. And they were sitting there, and they had this sparkly stuff in it, and they were swishing it, and they were sniffing it. I didn't know what they was doing, but if I could do that, if I could have that, I'd be okay. Because I was always comparing my insides with your outsides. If I could just feel the way you looked, I'd be okay. I had to come to you to find out that happiness is an inside job. 
And I was comparing myself with all of your outsides. And I wanted to be a lady and I wanted to be a classy lady and I wanted that. And so the waiter came over to take our order. He said, would you like wine with your dinner? And I said, you bet. And so he went off and he came back and he set those glasses, those long stem crystal glasses down in front of us. It's like, oh my God. And he poured Keith just a little bit and asked him if it was okay. I said, what do you mean, is it okay? He drank stuff in Oklahoma, they had things floating in it. Pour mine. <laughs> and he poured mine. And I sat there in all my smug and arrogance and I swished it. And I sniffed it. And I was wonderful until I looked across the table at Keith and he's drinking out of the carafe. <laughs> and I just yelled at him, what are you doing? He said, I'm drinking. What's it look like I'm doing? Simone says, not here, and she slides under the table. And I holler at the waiter, come here, come over here, bring us our food now. And he walks over to the table and he looks at me, and I don't ever want to forget it. I am the non-alcoholic. He looks at me and he said, I'm sorry, you are not eating here. And I said, and why not? He said, because you don't know how to act. Whoa, I don't know how to act. And I am so ashamed. And I am so embarrassed. And they're escorting us out. And we can't ever come back because Keith's talking to everybody in sign language. (laughs) (laughs) And we get home and I get right in his face. And he said, Sue, get out of my face. And I take one step closer. And he says, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to hit you. And I take one step closer. And the knockdown drag out fights on one more time. And that is the only way I can get his attention. Keith and I had a fight one night. And he left. And that wasn't a pattern. He usually came back. And I'm laying there in bed and I'm saying, God... Please let him die out there. God, please kill him in a car wreck. Don't let anybody else get hurt, but please kill him. And then I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what's happening to me? What's happening to me? This is a man I'm supposed to love. And I lay down and I cry myself to sleep. And I wake up the next morning and he's still not there. And I'm more angry than I was the night before. So I go in and I get Simone. I said, okay, Simone, come on, we're going to go find your dad. I didn't have a clue where I was going to find him out there, but I thought, we'll start this after-hours club down in Orange, which is about 12 miles from where we live. And I'll start out there, and I'll go from there. And so we go down there, and we get about two blocks from there, and I look over, and Keith's pickups parked by this house over on the side street. And I look at this house, and it's got motorcycles all over the lawn. And by then, Keith had become a biker, and I was most afraid of that image. It was the meanest. And I thought, damn him, he's in that house with those hills angels and he's drinking and he's shooting up and I'll show him. I will get him because I love the sweet taste of revenge. And so I got the keys to his pickup out of my purse and I got his pickup and I drove that pickup two blocks from that house and then I walked back to my car and I drove my car two blocks in front of that pickup. Then I walked back to the pickup and I drove my pickup two blocks in front of that car. And it only took me four and a half hours to get both of those vehicles home, but I did it, and I felt good. (laughs) And I wasn't a bad mother either. I didn't leave Simone unattended in either one of those vehicles. I made her walk every step of the way with me. I 
God, I felt so good. And we was home for a little bit, and the phone rings, and it's Keith. And he said, Keith, he said, Sue, come and get me. And in all my smug and arrogance, I said, you have one of your buddies bring you home. He said, buddies, what are you talking about? He said, I'm in jail. I said, jail? You can't go to jail unless I put you in jail. Because every time we'd have one of those fights, the cops were at our house. Either I'd call them, Simone call them, or the neighbors call them. And I was always putting him in jail, and then I'd go down and I'd bail him out with a hot check. And he'd gotten in jail by himself, and he couldn't do that. That was against the rules. <laughs> and I'm saying, no, no, you don't go to jail by yourself. You know, why did you get in there by yourself? You can't go in there unless I put you in there, Simone, or the neighbors put you in there, you know. And he's going, whatever, Sue, just come and get me. And so Simone and I go down there, and my pail is bailed. And I said, come on, Simone. And she said, let's get Daddy. And I said, no, we're not getting your daddy. Your daddy is a no good, rotten son of a gun. And we're not going to get your daddy. Your daddy doesn't love us and he doesn't do nice things for us. He goes to jail. That's how much your daddy loves us. He doesn't love you and he doesn't love me or he wouldn't do things like this. You see, I didn't understand he was a sick man. I didn't understand he had the disease of alcoholism. I took it all personal. I thought if he just loved us enough that he would do it different. Today I know that it's a compulsion of the mind and an allergy of the body and he had no control over it any more than I did. And I love it because Alcoholics Anonymous gave Al-Anon their 12 steps. And I wondered the first step, why does it say for Al-Anon that we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable? Why didn't it say we're powerless over the alcoholic? Because every time Keith put alcohol in him, my life became unmanageable because my whole focus was on him and trying to make him do what I wanted him to do. There's only two times in my life today that I get upset and that my life gets unmanageable. It's when I don't get my way and when I do. <laughs> it's just very simple. God's way is best. Just go with the flow and do the next indicated thing. And I had no clue about those kind of things back then. And we left and we go, went home. And we didn't. Simone cried all the way home and told me how mean I was to her daddy. And I just yelled and screamed at her all the way home. Because you see, alcoholism is a family disease and it runs downhill. We was home for a couple of hours and the doorbell rings and I go to the door and there's Keith standing there. And he did the dumbest thing that he always did. I go to the door and I said, what do you want? And he'd introduce himself to me as if I didn't know who he was. <laughs> he'd say, open the door, Sue. And I'd say, no, you're not coming in. He'd say, this is Keith Drum. I live here, you know. And I'd say, not anymore. And he'd say, Sue, please let me in. And I'd say, beg. If you want in, you beg. And he'd get down on his knees in front of his own home and beg to get back. Robbing that man of his dignity. When I thought he had enough, I said, okay, you can come in now. And he turned around and he looked out in the driveway and he said, oh, by the way, babe, thanks for bringing my pickup home. And I wanted to die because I hadn't done that to be nicer to help him. And Keith and I, being the people that we are when we'd have those fights, he always pulled a gun on me because he was a cowboy and he always kept a gun in his boot and he'd pull that gun on me and I hated it because guns shoot things and 
They hurt things you don't want them to shoot, like dogs and cats. And thank God, not us, but for the grace of God. And it's like, you can't do that to me, I'll show you. And I picked up a butcher knife and I started fighting back with that butcher knife. And I'm not proud of all the things that I did. But I know who I am. And I don't ever want to forget. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about our past is our greatest asset. And I am so grateful that I was raised by the long timers in this program that the only literature they had was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous is not conference-approved literature in Al-Anon, and I do not have a problem with that. But if you are new in Al-Anon, our literature says, read everything you can, learn everything you can about the disease of alcoholism, and what a better place to find it than the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am so grateful for that book. Because it told me the patterns, why my husband acted the way he did. And I needed to know that when I got here. Alcoholism is an ugly disease, and we fought with that gun and that knife for many years. Keith had been gone one time, and he came home, and I was going to give him the what for us one more time. And he made almost a fatal mistake. He went in, he wouldn't have anything to do with me, and he went in and he laid down on the bed on his stomach. And you don't ignore me when I'm talking to you. And I took my butcher knife and I said, damn you. And I just started stabbing him all over his back as much as I could, saying, God, please help me do this. God, please help me do away with this. I thought it was the man I didn't know it was the disease of alcoholism that I was trying to get rid of. And I was just stabbing him all over his back. And I started, you know, his t-shirt started turning red. And I'm going, oh my God. What is wrong with me? And I laid down and I started crying. I cried myself to sleep one more time. Next morning I get up and Keith wakes up and he goes, my God, something's wrong with my back. And I said, well, let me see. Because you can't tell me. And he turned around and I peeled his t-shirt up. And I said, you've been drinking all that rock gut whiskey you've broken out with acne of the back. I said, but I'll fix it. Just a minute, honey. I'll go get the rubbing alcohol. Got music to my ears. And Keith and I had a fight, and I fell down on the floor, and I got the whole side of my face kicked in, and I looked horrible. And I went to work, and people at work would say, does your husband beat you? And I'd say, no, if he ever laid a hand on me, I'd leave him. Because, you see, I had to live in that denial. Because if I said yes, I'd have to do something about it, and I had no answers. And I was always going to leave Keith. I was always going to divorce him. And so at noon I went across the hall to the lawyer and he looked at me and he said, oh my gosh, what happened to you, Sue? And for the first time I said, Keith and I had a fight. He said, do you fight like this all the time? And I said, no, only when he drinks. He said, do you think he's an alcoholic? And I said, I don't know what one is. 
He says, somebody that can't stop drinking. And I said, then he must be one because he can't stop. I've poured out booze. I've busted bottles. I filled bottles up with water. He got drunk on water a lot. <laughs> and he said the magic words to me. If you love him, why don't you take him to Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, what is that? And he said, that's a place where drunks go to stop drinking. And I said, great. I had an answer. So I went back to work and I went home that night after work and, and Keith was laying on the couch and I went over to him and I said, I went to a lawyer today and he said, if I loved you, I'd take you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he looked at me with all the sincerity he had. And he said, babe, I thought it would come to this and I called a man in Alcoholics Anonymous today. And he told me that there's a meeting tonight just right down the street. And I said, great, we'll go. You see, I believed. I wanted to believe every time there was a sober period, a problem had gone away. I didn't know that he had been to court that day and he was on a court card. I wanted to believe. Because I took it so personal. And so I asked him one time, I said, many start? He said, 8.30. And I said, good, we'll go. He said, well, we'll see. And so I hurried up and I cooked, I fixed dinner because I quit cooking a long time ago because the food in our house ended up on the floor and the walls and the ceiling and everywhere else. But you're going to take him to some place like that, you got to be nice and cook. And so I cooked for him and Simone and I were doing the dishes and I kept watching the clock and at 8 o'clock I went and got my butcher knife. Because uh, I kept it stuck between the mattress on my side of the bed or under my pillow all the time. He kept his... 45 on loaded on the nightstand. We slept like that for 13 years, and they weren't for people outside of that house. <laughs> and so I went in and I got my butcher knife, and I came back to him on the sofa, and I jabbed him, and I said, Get up, we're going to that Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. He said, I don't think so. And I said, I do, and I jabbed him again. And so he got up and he went out and he got in the car with me and showed. I said, now you tell me where that meeting's at. And he gave me directions and I took him over at that meeting. It was in this church. It had an AA sign out in the front. And I said, what time's this meeting over? He said, 10. I said, I'm going to tell you something, dude. You come out of that door for 10 o'clock, I'm going to get you. And uh, he went in that meeting. Now, when I got to Al-Anon, you told me I couldn't keep a drunk sober, but I did for four months, sitting in that parking lot every Monday night with my butcher knife. <laughs> and when I thought he had it down pat, I let him go by himself, and he didn't learn a thing. Alcoholics Anonymous did not work. And the sad part about that is there was an Al-Anon meeting there at the exact same time. But you see, I hadn't gotten to the want to. And I know today that this program is for people who want it, not for people who need it. I knew that it was bad then as Keith needed Alcoholics Anonymous. But I was living in the denial and I hadn't hit a bottom. And I believe that every non-alcoholic that lives with a drunk has to hit a bottom just like every drunk does. Because if we don't hit that bottom, we are not teachable. And we have to come in here teachable and surrendered. And if we're not surrendered, we're not teachable. The next four years of our life was total living hell because Keith got struck drunk. After four months, I quit taking him and he went by himself. And uh, he couldn't make it. Because you see, he couldn't come home to an old idea and stay sober. 
And today I know what supporting sobriety is all about. It's being the best example I can be in my own home. I can't live in a home with an active disease, and I don't believe a sober alcoholic can either. And in those four years, it was horrible, and you know the things that probably happened. I remember one night Keith was sitting in a chair and Simone had brought home a little stray dog. And she's sitting, this little dog was like a cocker spaniel, all matted and everything. She was over there loving on this dog. And Keith jumped up and grabbed his gun and just screamed at her, you can't love anything more than you love me. And he shot that dog in our living room. Nobody cried. Because you see, if you cry, you're weak and you might be next. Because alcoholism is powerful. It is a powerful, ugly disease. And it wants us to die. That is its only solution for us, is death and insanity. And sometimes insanity would be the gift. The way I see people that come in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous dying and going insane, death would be a gift. We have a friend that had 18 years and he's out there right now. I love alcoholics. There was a newcomer that came in our group. And she went to Al-Anon for three months and her husband did not get sober. And she told her sponsor, I don't need this anymore. It is not working. My husband's not sober. She didn't know that she came for herself and to be an example that one day sobriety might show up through her example. She wanted instant gratification and I know what that's all about. And we read about her in the paper and we got to see her on TV two months ago. Leslie went home and her and her husband got in a fight and she said she remembered she had to get out of the house and she tried to avoid the fight. And she said the insanity and the rage set in and she didn't even know what she was doing. And she got in the car and she tried to leave and he jumped on one of the kids' bicycles and tried to chase her. And when she stopped at the stop sign, he ran in front of her on that bicycle and she put that, she floorboarded that car and ran over him. And she looked in the rearview mirror and he was flopping back there. And she put it in reverse and stepped on the accelerator again and ran over him again. And she saw him in front and he was still moving and she floorboarded it and ran over him three times. And she said, I just wanted it to stop. And he's dead. She was stone sober. But she was insane with the disease of alcoholism. Alcoholism kills drunks. And it kills the people that love drunks. It is not a pretty disease. And you know that. I love the people that are affected by the disease of alcoholism. I would love... I love working with newcomers. I love helping people. I hate the disease of alcoholism. And I will do everything in my power to do what God wants me to do in order to help one person live and survive.
And we don't know who that one person is. But there's a few of us around. There's a few people. Mighty Home Group is called the Gotta Wanna Group. Because you gotta want it to be in my group. Because we don't have half measures. And we don't play around. In order to belong to my home group, you have to get a sponsor. You have to go through the 12 steps. And you have to get, and you have to pass it on. Those are the only three requirements to go into my home group. And there's a lot of people that can't do that. And we are very controversial because we don't put up with it if you don't. People say, oh, I don't want them controlling my life. Well, you can be an idiot and control it yourself if you want to. (laughs) But I want to live. Because I see over and over again. I have 24 years in Al-Anon. Today I know what works for me. (coughs) And I want to learn more. I want to keep getting better. I want to do what my God wants me to do. And I want to be what I think my God wants me to be. Because I don't want to be what alcoholism wants me to be. Because it's just right back here waiting on us all the time. And it's only arrested. And the only thing that keeps it arrested is the 12 steps and meetings and sponsors. It's just like Thursday night. I got so angry Thursday night because I didn't want to come here because Simone and Nicole just came home. And the selfish and self-centeredness in me wanted to stay and be there with them because we only get to see them once a year. And it was a speaker meeting at our Thursday night meeting. And I thought, oh, well, heck, it's just a speaker meeting. But I knew I needed a meeting. And I knew I needed to, and as soon as I got there, I knew the anger would go away. And when I walked in that meeting, there was one of my peers there was a speaker. And she'd just gone that day to pick up her daughter, who had just spent six months in jail. And I'm angry because I can't spend a weekend with my daughter. How selfish and self-centered I get. How much I tend sometimes to take this recovery for granted. And I knew the minute that I talked to Betty Ann that if I came here this weekend to be with you, that the chances are that I'll get to be with my daughter again. But if I quit being with you, she won't even want to come home. And she'll never bring that baby in that house again. And she says that very openly. She said, Mom, if you ever leave this program knowing who you are, I don't want Nicole to be around you. And she tells Keith, if you ever take a drink, you'll never see this baby again. Sobriety is the most important thing in our life, in our home. Physical sobriety for the alcoholic and emotional sobriety for me. And I'm so grateful that our daughter is still in the program. Our daughter has 24 years in Al-Anon. She started in Alateen and made the transition. And we are in this program because we hit a bottom. A desperate, nowhere else to go. I can't feel anything, numbness, bottom. And I don't ever want to forget that. I don't ever want to forget the last drunk in my home. I remember looking at Keith and he had Simone over in the corner doing all the things that he'd always done to her and it's like I saw it for the very first time. And I remember standing there and something came over me and I know today that it was God trying to move into my life. And a calmness came over me and I felt absolutely nothing because I think that's where our emotions and our feelings go. We feel nothing. 
And I looked at Keith and very calmly I said to him, Keith, I don't love you anymore. But I don't hate you either. And if you got to be a skid row bum, because that's what I thought happened to drunks, and that's what you got to do, but we ain't going to go any further with you. And I didn't take out my knife, and I didn't yell and cuss and holler at him. And Simone and I very quietly got some things together, and we left that house for the very last time, and I am so grateful. <coughs> I don't remember what happened in those next four days. But I remember on the fourth day, Simone was begging to go back home. <coughs> and she said, Mommy, i got to go home. i got to get some things for school. And I remember sitting there just walk, walking in a fetal position in a corner, and Simone was patting me on the shoulder saying, It's going to be okay, Mommy. Can we please go home? The child was comforting the adult. And so I finally said, Okay. And so we got in that car and we went home and I pulled up in front of that house and it was dark in there and we were afraid. We didn't want to go in there. We didn't know what we were going to find. And we walked in that house and we looked around. We couldn't find Keith and we kept going from room to room and we finally went back in the big bedroom and we found him there face down on the bedroom floor and we thought he was dead so we kicked him. And he turned over and he looked at me and he said, Sue, please help. And I know this is when God moved into my life. Because he gave me the power to say the one word that we can't say to those of you that we love so much that drink. One word. So powerful. No. No, I can't help you. If you want help, you help yourself. Never in the 15 years that I've been with Keith Drum could I ever say those words to him. And God gave me the courage and the power to carry it out that night. And Keith got up off of that floor and he made some phone calls for himself, thank God. And it seemed like forever and we fought with a gun and a knife one more time because that's who we are. And the doorbell finally rang and I went to the door and there's a little gray-headed, shriveled-up man standing there. And I'm thinking, geez, why don't they send the big ones on these trips? And I opened the door and I let little Jack Callahan in our life. And I'm so grateful to that man. He's still in our life today and I love him so much. And he brags about what a good Al-Anon 12-stepper he is. He's such a sweetheart. He calls me every once in a while and sings to me on my answering machine. He's so cute. But that man, I will never forget him. He asked me to go with him to take Keith to a detox and check him in. And I said, okay. And I went with him. And, and Jack took me back home and he sat in the driveway with me. And he said, you know, I've seen Keith around AA before and something's happened to him. And I think he wants it this time. But he will never make it going home to an old idea. And you are an old idea. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. He said, no, you don't understand. He said, a sober alcoholic can't stay sober in an environment they used to drink in. And today I know that's true because I've seen it happen many, many times. Keith just had a guy come back that he was out there for three months. He'd been sober for almost a year. And his wife didn't want to come to Al-Anon anymore. 
she didn't need it because she doesn't have a problem. She still enjoys her cocktails and her wine in front of her sober husband. You see, I don't think that's supporting sobriety in my home. We don't tolerate that kind of stuff. I would not stand in front of a child and look a sucker and say, you can't have candy. So why would I stand in front of an alcoholic and drink and say, you can't have any? And so we don't do that in my home. But she chose to do that. And her husband got drunk one more time and he's back. But she hasn't come back to Al-Anon yet. And I am praying that she does. I am praying that she does. Because I know an alcoholic can't stay sober in an environment they used to drink in. And so Jack told me I needed to go to Al-Anon. And he went in and he told Simone, if you love your daddy, the only way you can help your daddy is go to a program called Alateen. It was so <coughs> neat to see those two little Alateens up here today reading. And they did such a great job. Our children are affected by the disease of alcoholism. They need recovery. Why would we come here and give something so wonderful for ourselves and deny our children? We made Simone go to Alateen. She did not want to go. We made her go. Because everybody in the house has to be working on recovery. You have to have a program in order to live in our home. We don't care what kind it is. You just got to have one. There was times she wouldn't have a sponsor. And she would get grounded until she got a sponsor. <laughs> we used to ground her before the program all the time for things that meant nothing. And she'd get a sponsor and she'd be fine. And I remember the day that I knew that she'd picked up this program and she was applying it to her life. Because Simone's bedroom always looked like hell. Had stuff scattered all over it. And I'd go in her bedroom and I would just rag on her. And my sponsor would say, don't go in there if it makes you like that. It's like, ooh, how simple. You know? And I remember one time Simone saying, Mom, you get mad at me in my bedroom, but you're not mad at me down here in the kitchen. You know, what are you doing? And I said, I have to be focused where the problem is, and I can't take it everywhere else. And she said, oh, my goodness. And then one day I went in her bedroom, and I was yelling at her because everything was scattered everywhere. Her clothes were all over. And she looked at me and stood up very tall. When Simone got here, her hair was in her face, and her chin was on her chest, and she'd talk to people up through her hair and her eyebrows. But after she went to Alateen, she started standing up straight, and her hair came back. And that day in her bedroom, she stood up very tall and very straight and looked at me and said, Mom, I wouldn't talk to me like that if I was you. I said, oh, yeah? And why not? She said, because you're going to feel real bad when you got to do a tent step with me. <laughs> I thought, Whoa, she's getting it. She's getting it. Now. And she'd say things to me like, Mom, up your attitude. And I'd say, where did you hear that? And she'd go in Alateen. I'd go, oh, okay. Yeah. And she grew up and she made the transition into Al-Anon. And she's still in Al-Anon. And, and 17 years ago, she moved to Italy. And Alateen gave her the courage to follow a dream. when she wanted to be a model. And she became a model, very successful. She went to the Orient. And then after that, she stayed home for a couple of years. And she said, I want to go to Italy. I want to go to Milan. The, fashion capital world. I just want to know if I can do it. And he said, great, if you want to know if you can do it, 
then you have to work and save your money. We're not going to support it financially anymore. You'll never know that you can do it. And so she said, okay. And she had a sponsor, and her sponsor told her, great. You know, and Simone was working, and she was modeling part-time. And, and she came home one day, and she said, Dad, my sponsor says I've got to pay rent. And he said, that's not necessary, Simone. You need to save your money for your trip. She said, I know, but it's sponsor-directed. And in our home, there's three words that are so important. In the very beginning and still today, my sponsor says. Nobody debates with that in our home. And so Keith said, okay. And so Simone wrote Keith a check for, for rent. Three days later, he came to me. He said, you know that check that Simone wrote, for me, wrote me for rent? And I said, yeah. He said, well, it bounced. <laughs> I said, well, we taught her well, didn't we? <laughs> but she stayed over there and landed very well. She's a rent model. And even since she's had Nicole, they've wanted her to come back. And she wants to be a mom right now, and her husband wants her to be. Her husband loves her very much. He supports her program. He loves to see her working with young girls and giving this thing away. He said, you're at your best when you're with them. He's a wonderful man. We haven't found one thing wrong with him yet. <laughs> They've been married five years. And uh, what a neat person he is. And he lets her bring Nicole over here at Christmas time. What a gift he could give us. Not a better one. But Simone has worked her program over there the best of her ability. She has translated all kinds of literature over there. AA and Al-Anon. She's started conventions like this because they didn't have them. She's helped start women's conventions. She helped start speaker meetings and taping because they didn't have tapes. They were jealous of her because she had tapes. And so she said, well, let's have someone come and tell their story and we'll tape it. And so now they have tapes going over there. And she's literally a pioneer. Alan on is four years old over there when she got there. <coughs> and I am so proud of her. And I love her so much. And it's so funny the other day when uh, Nicole was following Keith around and saying, Pappy, Pappy. And I said, I can't believe how she's taken to him. And she goes, Duh, Mom, we've gone down and on for 24 years because he does that to us. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the charisma. I said, God, we got to get her into preteen as soon as possible. <laughs> but the dream that I have in my life and the hope for recovery that I have in my life because Fabio her father doesn't drink at all and he doesn't see it necessary he doesn't use anything he's a wonderful man we haven't found nothing wrong with him and he just uh, supports Simone in everything she does and I got to go over there when Nicole was born and I remember standing in Simone's home saying my gosh and I listened there was no screaming and yelling going on I looked around her home, there was no holes in her walls. There was no booze anywhere. And I remember standing there thinking, my God, what if the chain of alcoholism has been broken in our family? What if, oh God, please, 
Isn't that what we all pray for? And you know, it doesn't happen because we work on our marriage, we work on our family relationships. It doesn't happen because of that. That is not the answer. My sponsor told me when I came in here, do not work on your marriage. Work on your relationship with God and everything else will be fine. And you know what? She hasn't lied to me since then either. Everything that sponsored that I thought knew nothing has said to me has all been true. And I love her so much for that. Everything you tell us that works has, even when I thought it wouldn't. And I was thinking when the little Alatine was reading that page in her book about God. I remember telling my sponsor one time, you know, I don't understand God. She said, isn't that wonderful? She said, if he was small enough for you to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to solve your problems. But I figured out he's got some patterns. <laughs> and it's usually hurry up and wait. Because my solutions, I'm always wanting instant gratification, it never happens that way. Our family has gotten better because we've stayed active in the action. And we work with newcomers. I love newcomers. And we've stayed active in this program. And as a result, a family has come together. We've carried this message. My favorite place to carry the message is into prisons. I love prison work. I go to a woman's prison and I've been in there 17 years and there's never been a dark night. And I remember when I first started doing that, some AAs were saying, what is Al-Anon doing in a prison? What, what do you think makes... What makes you think Al-Anon belongs in a prison? And I said, because I know there's women in there just like me. And uh, I'll never forget the first night I went in there. And the lady, the institution chairman that got us in there then, took me in there, and I was with her and two other ladies, and they told their stories. And, and then she asked me to tell my story, and because of the violence that's in my story, they identified and they heard the answer. One did, I know for sure. And this little gal came up to me afterwards. And, and because there's a lot of alcoholics and addicts in there, they identify themselves as that. And this little gal came up to me and she said, So I'm so glad you're here. She said, I haven't ever heard anybody tell anything like me until I heard you tonight. She said, Thank you so much for coming in here. She said, I, I know I'm an Al-Anon now. I didn't know what I was. And I said, but were you drunk or loaded when you did what you did to get you in here? And she said, not at all. I was as sober as you and I are right now. She said, but I stood in my living room and I watched my drunk husband put a hole in my nine-year-old daughter's head with a 45. And she said, but the rage came in and she said, I showed him. I picked up that gun and I showed him. And she said, I'm doing a double life sentence right now because I couldn't prove I didn't kill my daughter too. And I stood there and I thought, but for the grace of God. And she still goes to those meetings. The Manson girls are in that prison and I've gotten to do a fifth step with one of those girls. And what a gift. 
She did the things she did to please a man. Her father was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and she hated him for going to meetings. But today they have a great relationship because of the 12 steps of this program and she 12 steps inmates in that prison. Keith has a panel in there and he's never had a dark night and those women love him. Those women have killed men just like Keith. And they love him. And they love our family. So Mom, when she comes home at Christmas, she said, what do you want for Christmas? We say, we want you to go to prison. She said, you're the only people in the world who want their daughter to go to prison. <laughs> and next Wednesday night, we're going to their annual AA banquet. I'm the only Al-Anon that they've ever invited to their AA banquet. And I feel privileged. My sponsor says, you are so crazy. But she knows what's happened in that prison. And uh, last year, Sony, because they uh, elected Keith Man of the Year at CIW, California Institute for Women. <laughs> and my sponsor gave me a bumper sticker because my husband is Man of the Year at CIW. <laughs> and they set him up at the front of the room and six inmates sang Mr. Big Stuff to him. <laughs> Our life has gotten better since we surrendered to this way of life. Our life has gotten better. We've had surrenders along the way, but they haven't been bad deals. They were at the time, but my sponsor has always told me there are no big deals in here. Get out of the drama and accept life on life's terms. And you take a hold of my hand and you take a hold of God's hand. And with that combination, you can go through anything. And if you're new sitting in this room, take a hold. Take a hold. And these people in this room and God can walk you through anything. And when you get through that, there is good stuff waiting on the other side of that wall of fear. Every good thing in my life is preceded by a wall of fear. Once you've given me the courage to walk through it, my life has gotten better. And so will yours. I'm here today because my God obviously wanted me here. I know that God uses people to help other people. And if you stay here, he will use you to help other people. When we're newcomers, we come and we just take, 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 take because we're selfish and self-centered and that's what we're supposed to do. And I was told to get a sponsor, go through the steps and then give it away or all the gunk would come back. And I don't want that stuff to come back into my life. And you've got to give it away. And that's what the big book says. If you don't give it away, you cannot keep it. And I want to keep what I have and I want to keep getting more because I recognize that one of my character defects is greed and impatience. And the more I go, the more I get. And I want to keep what I have and I want my life to get better and I want to be of maximum service to my God. And the only way I know how to do it is to stick with you. I am so grateful that I get to come together with people like you because we're all here because we're not all there. Isn't that great? <laughs> and we identify. And it's the language of the heart that works. And the only way I know how to explain my life to you is through a story. Because I know that God gave me you so I could find him.
And it's a story about a little boy laying in his room one night, and there was a thunder and lightning storm going on, and he was in there and he was afraid. And he got scared and he ran in and he got in bed with his mom and dad. And he was laying in bed with his mom and dad and he's gone. He's, he's trembling and his dad cuddled him up. And he goes, son, what's wrong with you? And he said, daddy, I was afraid in there. He said, I was so afraid. He said, it's thundering and hailing and raining outside and lightning. And he said, I was afraid. I was in there by myself and I was afraid. And his daddy looked at him and he goes, son, you didn't have to be afraid in there. You weren't alone. God was in there with you. And he looked up at his daddy and he said, yeah, daddy, I know. But right now I need something with skin on it. <laughs> and that's what you are. You're my God with skin on it. And I hope that everybody in this room has a happy holiday. Because holidays are the hardest time in the world for drunks and the families of. And if we just hang on to each other, we can get through these times. We have had Christmas all year long. Why do we let it go to Pucky during the holidays? <laughs> so hang on. Grab a newcomer. It will make your life so much more meaningful. And if you help a newcomer get through the holidays, my holidays will be great. That's what I'm going to do. I have that newcomer in my life right now. I got to do a fifth step last Saturday with a lady that I do not sponsor. But her sponsor has not been through what she's been through. So her and her sponsor came to my house and asked me to help them with that fifth step. Because they believe that my God works in my life. I hope that all of you get that kind of faith and confidence placed in you coming from where we come from. Nobody ever trusted me. And for two people, even her sponsor believed in me. What a gift. Only can that be seen through God's eyes. Thank you very much.